morning, everyone. So I've told this story before to several of you, so forgive me if you've heard it. Um, last April, in May, I went on this long bike trip from Canton to Providence, Rhode Island. And it took about two weeks, and I got to meet all sorts of interesting people. Um, one of the people I met was this guy by the name of Richard Humphreys. He lived on the, literally on the coast of Connecticut next to a lighthouse. And I happened to stay at his house for one of the nights on this trip. Um, he's 76 years old, but an avid cyclist and really interested in bike touring. And so as we were chatting and kind of nerding out about bicycles and touring and, and all the, that comes with that kind of adventure, he was telling me all these stories about the tours that he's done in the past. He's, uh, he, he went across the, the whole country, the whole United States, I think twice. He's toured on his bicycle, uh, I think Cuba, Japan, Ireland. He's done a bunch of tours in Canada. He was telling me stories about how he would find himself on occasion not knowing where he was going to sleep that night, and so he would wait till dark and kind of just throw his stuff behind a bush and then set up his tent and then try to make sure he was out before uh, anyone would see him in the morning. Uh, he even told me this one story where he found himself in downtown Philadelphia in, as, as night was approaching, and he was walking around and and someone approached him, someone that uh, looked like they had spent a lot of time on the streets, approached him and said, hey, man, what's you, what are you up to? He's like, I, 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 I need some place to sleep. And he's like, come on, man, I'll, I'll, I have a place for you. And he, tells me, he goes on to tell me that he was pretty sure this guy was like a squatter and this may have been like a drug house. He's like, but I bought him all pizza. I stayed there for two nights and I had a good time and got enough energy to, to move on the next day. And as he's telling me this uh, story, I'm thinking about, wow, what a, what a life of adventure this guy has lived. It's a full life. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm curious, when did you start uh, getting into all of this road cycling and, and bike touring? He said, I started when I was 63. And I was like, what? Here I am imagining all this, uh, these stories of him staying at a squatter's house and throwing his stuff behind a bush and he didn't even start until he was in his mid-60s and here he was 76 talking about another tour that he was going to go on two weeks later. I was, I was at this point uh, and still am in my late 30s thinking I gotta get some bike tours in before I get too old for this stuff, before my knees give out and here I am having a conversation with a guy uh, in his late the mid-70s, talking about the next tour that he's going to go on two weeks later. And it was one of those stories where it kind of uh, reshaped what I thought was possible. It, re, uh, it changed my own perception of what I thought I would potentially be capable of, because I mean, if this guy can do it, and he's motivated enough, perhaps I could do it too. And I think sometimes we hear stories like that that can can really open up our our minds and our perspectives on what's possible or help us rethink things that perhaps we've held for a long time we, we, because we we all kind of approach 
uh, certain things in life with a particular story or framework in mind. Um, it's a helpful way or tool to help us organize our lives. Um, but on occasion, we reach a point where perhaps we need to rethink that story or reimagine what's possible and engage in the world with a, a different type of framework. I mean, your whole life is changing, and as things, as you experience new things like parenthood or a new job or a new environment, it changes your perspective, perhaps, on what you thought was possible before. And so for me, sometimes it's helpful to rethink these stories in light of how they began. Um, like, for example, when your child, I mean, not that anyone experiences this, when your child is being, let's say, difficult, sometimes it's helpful for me to flash back in my mind them as a young baby so that I can remember, yes, they are indeed a child, and yes, I am indeed the adult in this situation, <laughs> so I need to, to act like one. Um, but applied to the story of our faith, and I think especially as we engage in the season of Lent, I think the exercise of taking another look at our beginnings is a helpful one, um, especially when we come to this time with questions around the Bible, the kingdom of God, the role of Jesus, the point of the gospel message. I think starting at the beginning and taking a look at that with a perhaps a, a different lens could be a helpful exercise for us in this season. Because perhaps you, like me, find yourself wrestling sometimes with an internal relationship to the gospel message, trying to reconsider frameworks that you've grown familiar with. Um, or perhaps you're coming at this with a curiosity about what is the gospel when we, when we talk about that? What is the good news of Jesus? Or... Perhaps everything I'm about to say is kind of just old hat for you. You've, you've heard this all before, and it's a refresher in the truths that you've already have established in your life. And I think either way, that in light of this season, as we look forward to the celebration of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, I think we can all be helped by considering these questions. What is the start of our story? How does our understanding of the beginning impact our perception of the whole narrative? How might my relationship with God be enhanced as I wrestle with old stories in a new way? So, as the, term, as the sermon title states, where do we begin? Now, as a parent of young kids, uh, I find that their questions become more and more uh, nuanced and difficult. They've gone from things like, Dad, how do you spell the word cat, to what is evil, <laughs> or uh, why do good th bad things happen to good people, or all these sorts of questions where I just feel like I need a little more time to digest and think about them. And one of the, one of the uh, helpful phrases that I've, that I've used that at least relieves some of the pressure of the moment is, well... There's a lot of different perspectives on that topic. And so I think that generally buys me enough time to, to pause and think about my own perspective and my own experience, and even buys me enough time to say, I'm going to come back to you on that as, after I think about it a little bit more. And so occasionally in this sermon, you might hear me say, there's a lot of different perspectives on this topic. Now the story I'm about to read, and that was read earlier, 
It's considered one of the primal texts of the Judeo-Christian Bible. It includes creation, and then in uh, chapter 3, we read what we often refer to as the fall. Now, there's a lot of different perspectives on this story. Some who would read this type of story as literally 6,000 years ago, there were two people who were talked into taking a bite of a piece of fruit by a talking snake. But there's also a lot of scholarship that finds the poetic nature of the story as perhaps one of its most important elements. And this doesn't make it less true. In fact, it's, it's pointing at this was, the fact that this was never intended, perhaps, to be a scientific recounting of the beginning of all things. But rather, it represents a truth that is so remarkably, inevitably, irrepressibly true that it repeats itself in every culture, language, and alphabet. It bubbles up in every story after story after story. And this truth that is incredibly germane to our Christian faith is heightened as it keeps expressing itself in various forms across the human experience. With that said, I do take this story far too seriously to relegate it to a single event 6,000 years ago in the life of two people. This story has repeated itself not only in two people and their children, but in every human that has ever lived. We are Adam. We are Eve. This is our journey. And that points to the sacredness of the text in my mind. A multi-thousand-year-old text, something that you and I can read, holds up to our human experience all these generations later. So let me reread our passage. Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we often interpret this story to mean that the woman was intentionally disobedient and disregarding the rules that God had established, leading us to perspectives of the fall and original sin that have marked us ever since. That this pursuit of sin, this pursuit of evil, was so egregious that we, it marks us today. But I want us to consider perhaps adding a, a, a nuanced reading to that as well, a different reading of the story that opens us, opens us up to reimagining the intentions of Eve, and thus our own relationship to the story. There are two things in my mind that the serpent does in this story that I think bear significance. The first thing is that the serpent, the first thing that the serpent does is introduce this idea of shame, not enoughness, insufficiency, incompleteness. The serpent did not intend, first of all, to change the woman's mind about the tree. The serpent's first intention was to change the woman's mind about God, about the relationship she had with God, and to change her mind about herself. What was true, we know from reading the previous chapters, about Adam and Eve was that they were created with an inherent union with God. They were made in the likeness and image of God. They had divine DNA running through their veins. 
They were unequivocally united to the divine. There was nothing about them that could be separated from God. But then the serpent comes along and says, you've been lied to. You are one who deserves to be lied to. The relationship of trust that you think you have is not true. The serpent challenged that truth. The serpent caused her to question her relationship with God. In other words, I thought I had this relationship with God. Now I know that I have nothing of the sort. I'm not inherently united to God. I am inherently separated. The serpent's first message to Eve is that the divine union you thought you had was true is not true. But then the serpent points back to the tree. With that understood, there is good news. If you eat of that tree, the opposite of what God says, then there is good news. So the second thing the serpent does is he goes back to the tree and introduces Eve to this idea of sin. Indeed, you are transgressing what God has told you to do, but to a good end. The serpent does not say, do what God told you not to do, and you'll be just like me. You'll be a serpent too. You'll be a devil too. He doesn't say that. The serpent says, you will be like God. You will be reunited to God. Now the story has already told us that Adam and Eve had divine union with God. They were made in the image of God. The serpent enters the story, lies to them, and introduces them to shame, saying, you don't have divine union. You are not like God at all. But if you sin, you will be like God. You will be like God, excuse me. You will think like God thinks. You will possess information that you don't currently possess. Now, we know what the tree was called, right? It was the tree of what? Good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Um, in the Hebrew, it actually can be translated the concept of good and evil. Uh, Adam and Eve didn't even have this capacity to understand or to pigeonhole everything into this binary of black and white, good and bad, holy or evil. The serpent said to two people who were like God, you are not like God. To two people that had perfect union with God, you don't have perfect union with God. But I have good news for you. You can be like God. You can know the concept of good and evil. You can sit at the seat of judgment and within five seconds you can tell who's in, who's out, who's good, who's bad, who's holy, who's fallen. Now this, is, this might be where I get myself into a little bit of trouble. But again, there's a lot of different perspectives on this sort of thing. <laughs> um, but I want to ask, does this kind of message sound familiar? Convincing humans that they are inherently separated from God and then to conveniently be the ones who have the capacity to reunite them to God. Does this sound like the gospel? Does this sound like good news? Or does it sound eerily similar to the offer that the serpent made to Eve? So what about sin? Is that still real? Of course it's real. But what if sin isn't our attempts to disobey God in an effort to be more evil? What if sin is our misguided efforts at seeking a union with God we've already have? What if sin is built on a foundation of, psycho, of a psychological sense 
of insufficiency that's not true? What if our food addictions, our substance abuse, our unhealthy sexual behaviors, our violence and retribution, all these things that are on the big bad sin list, what if they are not rooted in an attempt to be evil, but in an attempt to acquire a sense of solace or peace or sufficiency that through deception we have acquired about ourselves? A sense of insufficiency that simply is not true, but is our felt reality. Fast forward to Jesus, and I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here we are at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what happens at the start? God declares Jesus' inherent union with the Father. By declaring his love for and pleasure in Jesus, we hear echoes of some of the same words from the creation story where God declares everything good. And what happens next in this story? You may or may not know. But following the baptism, Jesus is taken into the desert to be tempted in the wilderness. He's rewriting the story from the beginning. He isn't listening to the lie. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? Are you truly the Son of God? You don't have to do anything, really? Not eat the fruit, but in the temptation of Jesus, turn this stone into bread. There's nothing inherently wrong with turning stones into bread. Jesus did that sort of stuff all the time. The temptation wasn't to be evil. The temptation was to fall into the lie of insufficiency and inappropriate shame. It was the temptation to jump through hoops, to pull the rabbit out of the hat, to justify or prove you are who God says you are, to do an action, a work, to justifiably call yourself a child of God. Jesus did not resist becoming like the devil that day. He resisted that day believing anything other than his inherent belovedness and identity as a child of God. Now, I don't know what your experience is, um, but if it's some version of we have to convince them how broken they are so that we can convince them how great the repair is, I would ask you to consider how I believe Jesus embodies the actual good news in his ministry. Jesus rewrites the story. He restores the shame that was bestowed on Adam and Eve after they believed the lie of their inherent brokenness. In so doing, Jesus reveals to us a life lived completely aware and convinced of his inherent union with God, the inherent bearing of the divine and the inherent bearing of the divine image of others. So what does that look like? It looks like declaring blessings to the poor. It looks like loving neighbors and enemies. It looks like announcing that the reign of God is within you and among us. 
It looks like self-sacrificing love. And it also looks like cursing the religious elite who convinced image bearers of a sickness they never had, offered a cure they never needed, and loaded them with a shame they never deserved. So what is the good so what if the good news is better than we imagined? What if the good news is that God has not lied to us? What if the good news is that we are absolutely made in the image and likeness of God? What if the gospel is seen at the baptism of Jesus before ministry, before miracles, before death, before resurrection? God says, I need to say something about this prototype human who is the new Adam. You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And coming out of the water, hair still wet from baptism, with that voice ringing in his ears, you are the beloved son. You do not need to take a journey to become the son of God. You simply need to embrace the identity that has always been yours. What if the good news is that this is our starting point? So where do we begin? This is where we begin. The gospel is not less than we thought it was. It's more than we could have ever imagined. So when you find yourself asking, what is the gospel? I hope you will follow up that question with another question. So where do we begin? Because it's this inherent union with God that begins all of our stories. It's our starting point. And the only thing required of us is to live into that inherent union with God that was always ours. And from there, we can readily recall the image of God present in those around us. Of course, this takes practice. This takes community support. This takes stepping away in prayer and meditation to re-commune with our God, who reminds us of our unity with Him. These are all things that Jesus Himself did. He needed this to continue to keep Himself locked into this truth. But imagine what could be if we took seriously our life as inherently united with the divine. Imagine how we might perceive those around us if we consider their divine union with the Creator? How might we live differently when we not only reject the lie of our own inadequacy, but that we accept the truth that we have been created as bearers of the image of God? And as we look to reflect on this Lenten season, a season where we consider our own relationship to God, ourselves, others, creation, the realm of the kingdom, maybe may we reflect not only on the culmination of the story in the resurrection of Christ, but may we consider the question, where do we begin? And may this question lead us to a discovery of the good news gospel message that is greater than we thought it could be. I'd like to end here with a benediction written by a theologian and author, Dr. Tripp Fuller, that I think is fitting. May you know this, that the God who made the world knows your name, knows your face, and cares for you. This is true of you on your best days, and it's true of you on your worst ones. It's true of your neighbor, and it's true of your enemy. 
And may the love that was revealed in Jesus Christ dwell within you and go before you. And may you be faithful through the life of the Spirit so that the love we've seen in Christ becomes material in your homes, your jobs, in our nation, and in our world.